How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Welcome to How Hard Can It Be, up close and personal with the real people in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and you can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap or MikeTrap.com. This week I'm talking with Nanigans founder and CEO Rick Calvillo. Nanigans is a maker of the advertising automation software that powers much of the marketing you see on Facebook for brands like SeatGeek, Rulala, Wayfair, Zynga, and over 150 others who rely on digital media to find new customers. Before Nanigans, Rick led three significant technology companies here, including Conley Corporation, which was acquired by EMC in 1998, and Incipient, which shut down in 2008 after raising over $92 million in venture capital. Suffice to say, Rick knows the ups and the downs of business building better than most, and I asked him about what he's learned along the way after we talked about how he got his start. Here now my conversation with Nanigans founder and CEO, Rick Calvillo. All right, I'm here today with Rick Calvillo from Nanigans. Welcome, Rick. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, coming out on this beautiful day. You had a little problem with your fancy skateboard coming over, is that right? I did, I did. I bought an uh, electric skateboard and the remote control died. So Serves you right, pushing yeah. 50 on a skateboard. Hey, <laughs> a- 48. <laughs> um, well, thanks for doing this. So w- what I want to do is, is just sort of help people you know, get to know you and what you're about. And let's start at the very beginning. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in Michigan. I was born in uh, Michigan, lived there for nine years, and then my dad was transferred to New York, so we moved to Connecticut, a suburb of New York, Darien, Connecticut. So I spent r- roughly half my life in Michigan and half in in Darien, Connecticut. And and was like you know in Detroit or like hinterlands of Michigan? It was uh, Birmingham, Michigan. Yeah. yeah, small town. Pretty small. Yeah, suburb. Yeah. And uh, siblings. Yep, I'm the oldest of four. Uh, sister and then twin identical twin younger brothers. What was the sort of family dynamic uh, before the move to Darien? Do you, do you how, so how old were you when you made? So the they move? were pretty. Young. I was nine when we moved. Yeah. Uh, my sister's like two and a half years younger, and then my brothers are seven years younger. So they were really young. Um, family, family dynamic. I don't remember too much, honestly. So, but third, I, didn't want, I didn't want to move. I felt like I had more. Friends. Yeah, third grade. Friends. That's tough. That's tough. Fifth grade. Actually. Fifth grade. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So you go to Darien. It's I was the, young for my grade. the land of Arians. Um, it's a beautiful, so this yeah. is like the gold coast of Connecticut. Uh, what, um, what was that like? Yeah, it's a very white bread town. Uh, not, I probably wouldn't raise my daughters there. It's a tough place. Yeah. A lot of money near New York. Um, not the, necessarily the greatest values. Uh, I think good for boys, like sports is great and stuff, but hard on girls. I found my sister had a tough time with it, with the peer pressure and stuff. So I'm not sure I would... I'm not sure I would raise my two daughters there. Right. But it's a nice it's a nice place. Near the water, you know, we could water ski and fish and so that's nice. And you went to the public high school there? Yep, public public high school. Yep. Did you play any sports? I did. I played I ran track, I played um, I skied, I played hockey bef- up till freshman year. Played a little bit of football. Um, what else did I do? That's about it. Track was probably my best. Where'd you go to school? I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Penn. Penn, yep. Why'd you pick Penn? 
Uh, it was the one my dad would pay for, the one, <laughs> of, the, of the ones I got in. So I, I, I got acceptances from Middlebury, Bowdoin, Penn, and others got rejected by Harvard and a couple others. I can't remember. Harvard, Princeton, Brown, I think I got rejected. Penn at that point was maybe middle of the Ivy, middle to lower Ivies, you know, in terms of difficult to getting in. It also it depended a lot on where where people from your high school applied. I think my year, everyone wanted to go to Dartmouth. I remember from Darien, so yeah. that, that was tough to get into. Uh, but Penn was, um, you know, I got in. I was debating between Middle, Middlebury, Bowen, and Penn, and my dad said, "I'll I'll pay for Penn." Yeah, you could ski. Uh, yeah, know, could ski. It would have been a completely different experience. Yeah, liberal arts, small. I mean, I was getting phone calls from those schools, like, "When are you coming? Are you going to accept?" So they were actually recruited me, whereas Penn was. A much larger Oregon, yeah. What was your experience there? Did you have a good one? So when I got to Penn, I, I felt like a number, right? Because it's a big school, uh, tons of smart people, extremely aggressive, hardworking. You know, I remember my freshman year seeing, right, you know, I remember the first week that seeing the kids go to the library at like 7 in the morning, you know, and it's like, yeah. wow. this yeah. is So Penn kids are hardworking kids, very intense. This is 1986, 87, my freshman year, and... Uh, the stock market was was going up, 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 and I remember people, kids were like trading stocks. So I actually got into trading options that year as a freshman, uh, and then we had the crash of '87, uh, and so that that sort of dampened my interest in, in in the stock market. Thankfully, as I said, I, I felt like a, a number of Penn Wharton undergrad has a big effect on the on the sort of culture there. Yeah. I was a college student in in economics. I actually transferred over to engineering, or I was going to transfer to engineering, started taking engineering classes. Computer science, 120, and math and stuff. I found it really hard, actually. The economics, liberal arts degree was much easier. And I, but but then I started a company because I felt, I don't know, Penn got my competitive juices flowing. And, and I started a company my sophomore year uh, called Hardware House, which was a business to sell third-party storage systems. We rented Mac, Mac computers. We had a store on campus. And we sold mail order. This is before the internet, but uh, it grew pretty big. It grew up to about a $10 million business. The digital storage. So you can put... Data, sto- data storage systems, yeah. yeah. So we built... Uh, we originally sold DRAM upgrade, memory upgrades for Macs, and, and then there was a worldwide shortage of those in, in 1988. And so then we switched kind of to sell storage, hard drive systems, tape, tape drive systems, branded. We had a brand name called Maxs. It was for Macs, so storage systems for Macs. Uh, it was it was a good business. I mean, it, well, but it grew grew to like I said about ten million people, about ten ten million revenue, ten people. Downtown Philadelphia. We had a I hired a president and stuff. Graduated on time with a B with a B GPA. I was happy about that, but didn't have a lot of time for the engineering. So that's why I didn't do the engineering school. Right. I'm actually on the board of Penn's engineering overseers um, board. No, sorry, I'm on the board of Penn Engineering and uh, board of overseers. It's a mouthful, and uh, I do that because I mean I think engineering is great for as an, as an entrepreneur. I think it's the best background to have. If I could do it again, what do you think led you to start a business when most people are out working on their flip cup skills and, and trying to get laid? You know, like, why 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 do that? Well, again, Penn is different than most schools. I mean, you've got the Wharton undergrads, even as freshman, sophomore, you know, young kids, uh, very pre-professional thinking about. Back then, it was Wall Street, right? So. In the in the late '80s, every everyone was going to Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, stocks, bonds, uh, um, money markets. I mean, every everything was yeah. FX trading. I mean, we were talking about 
Yeah, it's like hardcore '80s. Really, was the, yeah. that was the culture you were you were in? And yeah, and so I was a techie. I, I think to answer your question, this was kind of I was a techie. I had worked uh, in Stanford, Connecticut, in the summer before my fre- before and after my freshman year for a, a graphic design shop that also had like a dealership that sold this stuff. And they, he asked me, "Why don't you sell it on campus?" And then I did, and I said, "Wow, I can be a dealer." And I did it, and um, didn't know anything about accounting. Didn't take accounting until junior year. Yeah. Um, but it was just a way to stand out, I guess, to be different, to compete with my peers. I, I just wanted to get started. I felt like I wanted to make money. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did you run that after school? Yeah. So that company, uh, Maxess slash Hardware House, right after I graduated, the one of my suppliers bought bought the assets. It was a Korean company called Loviel Computer Corporation. Uh, it was a husband and wife team uh, from Korea. He, he grew up and he knew a lot of the, his friends started Samsung or, or worked at Samsung and Lucky Gold Star and these Korean companies. And so he had connections to get these parts and uh, he ended up buying the product assets and, and in, he was based in Minneapolis. I actually moved to Minneapolis for a year um, and we built a disc array product uh, as a new product and then I spun off of that. It was hard to be partners with a husband and wife, yeah. especially if the books were written in handwritten Korean. Um, so it was like, like he he won. The wife said to me, "We had such a good year. Look," and I said, "I can't read that. Like, what am I looking at?" Uh, and then so we spun off on that. I did a, my second startup called Conley Corporation in '92 in Manhattan. Uh, got office space for my dad's advertising agency. Ended up selling that in '98 to to EMC here in Boston. Yeah, your dad was an that guy. He was. What agency? He worked originally for Young and Rubicom, and then um, started his own agency called. Calvio Shivak and Partners, and then and then another one called Farrell Calvio, uh, which he bought from Ross Roy, I think, or something. I don't know. Right, right. He did his own couple agencies. Right. They were always at two fifty Park Avenue South, twentieth and Park in so, Manhattan. So he 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 was an entrepreneur, you know, in that sense. I mean, you grew up with it at some level. Yeah, he was an ad guy on the business side, not not creative side as much. But he was, he's an artist by training, and then yeah, he was a, my grandfather was a. A graphic artist also. Let's talk about Conley Corporation a little bit. So it was a significant company in Boston in the sense that uh, when EMC bought it, I mean, it was something people heard about. Yeah. Um, tell us about that experience. Like, what uh, what did you learn from bringing something? I mean, that's a different scale of business than Maxess. Um, as you sort of raise things to the next level, what did you take away from that journey, do you think? Well, Hardware House of Maxess was strictly mail order. We didn't have much value add around the product or anything. Uh, and I did notice, I mean, it, what I learned from that is that business is tough. I mean, pre-internet, if you weren't the lowest price in the magazine, you didn't get half as many phone calls. Yeah. Know? So it's total commodity. So I wanted to, in Conley, you know, actually develop software to differentiate, you know, to make a unique product, a proprietary product. And uh, But we started out, we... we, we you know, I was 23 years old when I started. I didn't have a track record, um, so I couldn't get VC funding at that point. Um, one of my salespeople from the Korean company, Loviel, uh, named Jean Hamilton, had her um, mother invest. Her mother from Istanbul invest like $60,000. So that wire came in from Istanbul. That was, I think, the first money in. And then we got my parents' uh, neighbors to invest, uh, you know, 50 grand or something. So we got it, I think I got it up to like 200 grand from friends. No family per se, but my dad uh, did give us uh, free rent for a while. Um, So we got 200 grand sort of from family. And then, so we bootstrapped it, right? Didn't have a track record. 
it was bootstrapped, angel funded. Uh, we never had more than a couple months of payroll. You know, and that, that enforces a real discipline, right? You just do things that generate cash. You don't, you know, yeah. can't take Connection any, to the reality. Take, can't, can't take many flyers and other things. Yeah. So Conley Corporation, we started out with a disc array. We sold it to publishers like Time Inc. and a um, bunch of different, yeah, Time Inc. was the big one in New York. We're, and there's a 10 disc, hard, 10 hard drives in a box, striping data across them with redundancy and stuff. We, we, it was all for the Mac, originally Macintosh. We wrote device drivers on the Mac. We, wrote, we built a host adapter, which is hardware and software. Had a bad experience with hardware. Never wanted to do it again. Uh, then we eventually landed a huge deal with Chase. So we were at a trade show, Unix Expo, showing our disk array. We wanted to plug into the Sun. Actually, we had OEM deals with DEC, too, so at the time, digital equipment up here um, for the Unix versions of our software. So early on, we had built a system, but then OEMs like Hitachi, IBM, DEC, eventually EMC, licensed our software separately. And so we were a little schizophrenic. We didn't know whether we wanted to be a systems company you know, to compete with EMC or a software company competing with, like, Veritas and other software companies. Yeah. We eventually decided uh, a year before the company was sold that we were going to be a systems company. And so we were going to focus on the Wall Street uh, customers that we had. The main reason being we, we, we landed Chase. We built the single largest disk array farm for a trading floor at the time. This is, 2000, this is 1995 or something. Massive trading floor. About six months after the trading floor opened, Chemical bought Chase, and it was scrapped. But it was uh, it, it was thousands of these disk arrays, mm. uh, and and I got a good sense of like sort of seven by twenty four trading environments, mission critical environments. You had, you know, uh, London, Tokyo, Sydney, all logging into these systems, uh, so they they could never go down. If we had to do like microcode upgrades, we had to you know do it off hours and stuff, so it was pretty crazy. So a year before the company was sold, we decided to go systems, on focus on systems. Right. But then we didn't have much money, so we went. We had the OEM deals. We went to the OEMs and said, hey, you want to buy some software? We're going to take that money to fund the systems business. But there was so much demand for the software, we then thought, oh, maybe this is a better business. So we actually picked one choice, and then we flipped. Six months later, we changed our minds and went to the software route. So right. it was either software OEM or systems. We picked systems. We then changed our minds six months later, switched to software, Six months after that, the company was acquired. Right. So it was a good, you know, I mean, that, we didn't have a venture-led board. There was no venture capital. Um, EMC eventually invested as, a, as, an, as an independent, as a, as a corporate investor, minority. Um, but there was no venture f- money in it. Um, right. Actually, most of the angel money came from friends at Penn. So I, got, I have to give a shout-out for Penn. I mean, there was a meeting once. A friend of mine who was, went to Wall Street, went to Societe General. He said, hey, come in and meet my, my fellow bankers. Uh, he was a municipal bond trader, actually. We went in, and he, a trader, sorry. On his trading floor, I gave one 20-minute pitch, and there was $4 million of checks at the corner of the desk after that. Like, So this, is, this was 1996 or something, 95, 90, I don't know, in that range. Like Wall Street was humming. They had plenty of bonus money. It was after their bonus checks. And, sure. And they all made 10 extra money, so I was, I was happy about it. Well, that's good. But, uh, but, but the reason I mentioned the flip-flopping in strategy is that what I found subsequent to that is that you don't have as much flexibility. When, when you have a venture-led board, you know, you, you, you can't necessarily pivot as, as, as easily. Right. You like that freedom, that flexibility. Well, for me, it made all the difference. We were worth nothing a year before we sold the company, and I couldn't raise venture money either. Yeah. Uh, ironically, the day after we sold to EMC, which in Boston was the most valuable company in Massachusetts at the time, we 
all of a sudden became I became attractive to the to the venture firms, right? So we got incubated by Matrix, and I did, and then uh, Greylock actually gave us the term sheet for my next company. So. All right, well, that's a good opportunity for us to take a quick break. Um, we'll come right back and we'll talk a little bit about Incipient and then about Nanigans. How hard can it be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. All right, so you're fresh on the heels of this experience, right? Um, it's a home run. I mean, you raised very little money and, and got a great exit built a valuable company, sold it to the top company in Massachusetts, and now the world comes knocking at your door. Tell us about the inception of Incipient. Uh, Incipient, so we, I spent two and a half years at EMC kind of vesting in peace. It was a, a we set up, we, we opened the EMC Cambridge Software Center at, in Kendall Square, spent a lot of time working on the building, and, you know, um, not a, it wasn't a very stress-free job, actually. Um, great company, EMC back then was led by an Israeli engineering group. Um, so I learned a lot at EMC about data storage enterprise. We also covered AOL. I covered AOL representing engineering. So I learned a fair amount about internet and how internet companies were using data storage back then. One thing I noticed is that I was slowing down mentally. So uh, for me, not working in a startup, you know, working less than 40 hours a week for a big company, I just, my, I, I noticed after a year, my brain was slowing. Um, so the notion of like, uh, I, I think it's laughable when you hear people that are quote unquote retiring in their 40s or 30s or in, in my case late 20s it's just a bad idea right yeah, yeah. your brain will slow down and so I didn't like that feeling of not being able to brainstorm with engineers in a room on a whiteboard and so started that so after about a year at EMC we started brainstorming with local guys to think about the next idea uh, you know networked with a bunch of venture firms here in Boston there were lots of them back then I think twice as many as there are now it feels like uh, this is, we're talking about 99, 2000. Uh, the ones that, you know, I was networking with were Northbridge, um, Greylock, Sigma, uh, uh, Charles River, uh, Matrix. All the big guys in yeah. enterprise infrastructure. All the big, so, yeah. Oak Investment Partners. There's a bunch. Yeah. And, um, you know, I got, in, I got to invest in their side funds at the time, uh, Greylock being the best eventually when they got into Facebook. And uh, it was fun. We just, you know, different ideas. I was a proven track record now after having sold the company, even though I was probably a worse entrepreneur because I was less hungry than I was a year prior. Right. So Incipient, the, the idea came, uh, I just knew this, this, this concept of virtualization was out there. And I was kind of technology, it was a technology-led decision, which is the wrong way to start a company. You know, I was thinking like an engineer, which is, oh, this technology of switch resident storage virtualization is a cool concept. Right. And I'm going to start a company based on that concept. That was a bad idea. Turns right. out it, that was a really bad, especially picking the Cisco director switch as our platform. It was a bad, bad idea for a startup. Right. So it was, it was, but you must have, I mean, you had been marinating in customer problems for two years, yep. right? So you, yeah. you had to have some sense of that this this enabling technology had the potential to do something customers needed better than, right. you know. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that, that you went out and you, like, sometimes we've talked about the, you know, problem first. You know, we build a company right. from the problem back versus right. from the solution forward, you right. know. Um, and you, in your view, Incipient was more from the solution forward. Right. I think we were technology-driven, which is the wrong way. I think you want to be market-driven. Yeah. And I think even before the market, you want to have a sense of the business model and your personal goals. Like, like Incipient, so my experience with 
Hardware House, Maxess, Conley, you know, which were all bootstraps, angel funded, is that you, and I was younger, right? Um, is you, you think you can do everything. Yeah. You think you can just get started and then pivot 10 different times and make it work. Yeah. Mike's, that, that may be, that may be true with bootstrapped or angel funded companies. It's not true with venture funded companies. Yeah. Once you take venture money, you have a direction. The rocket has launched. You can move it, you know, 20 degrees left or right, but you're not going to turn the rocket. Yeah. Yeah. And you raised a lot of venture money for that. Yeah. We raised a hundred million, $96 million, um, never got anywhere close to profitable and, uh, yeah, made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. When you reflect back on that experience, which was really, you know, had to be humbling in some ways, what, what did you take away from it besides an aversion to venture capital? <laughs> well, first of all, there was, there were some entrepreneurs that I was part, that I was brainstorming with before we started that said, look, I think this, that said to me, you know, I think this idea needs to percolate a little more. Let's spend more time on the idea. And I didn't think at that time in my life, at age 31, coming off of a good success or 30, that... You needed to really think it through. You'd better just get started and you'll figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. In hindsight, yeah. You you once you get started, especially once you take venture money, you get blinders. I have blinders. You you just want to make it work in your market, but it may be a bad idea. It may be a bad market. Maybe a tough business. Yeah. And that was a tough business because we were in a large enterprise space as a startup, competing against an oligopoly, which was EMC, IBM, HP, and. Yeah, maybe yeah, those three, and so they didn't. And this virtualization technology was actually disruptive to them. They had no incentive to to, to push it, and they they killed it. Actually, never saw the light of day. So the VCs did me a favor and and told me they weren't going to fund it anymore, and that we needed to sell it, and I should get lost essentially or help help sell it. Yeah. Um, at the time, I thought that was a big mistake, but in hindsight, it, it was the right decision, and it wasn't a great. Like I said, it wasn't a great space to be in. But you don't. You know, it was funny. A month before that happened, I before the VCs sort of pulled the plug, we ended up selling the assets, suing IBM for breach of contract and, and settling, and then selling the assets. But a month before that, I was so convinced that, that our idea for the next phase of Incipient was a good idea. This is what I mean by blinders, I'll give you an example. Yeah. A month before, I was convinced, so convinced, that I hired a CTO to do this new product direction. We were going to basically get out of the data path and just do provisioning software for large enterprises. Uh, not the data. The data path pieces was the part that was really hard because we had we needed the certification from EMC and IBM and HP storage groups. But why would they certify us if we're going to disrupt? Sure. Them, if we're yeah. going to abstract them, right? Yeah. So, uh, but a month before I, I, I pulled a, C, a CTO out of EMC, who I, whom I knew, and I said, "Look, if the VCs pull the plug, because I had an inkling they were going to not continue to fund this next idea, I will get, I will fund it myself. I'm so convinced in this idea, I'll fund it. The provisioning enterprise storage provisioning software." And he had built a similar product as a consultant for Goldman Sachs. Well, he, you know, and he, uh, anyway, so, so this guy, Amir, I said, Amir, all right, I called him up. I said, hey, the VCs have, have stopped funding it. Let's meet in a week, and we'll, I'm going to fund it myself. I'll put a couple million in for this new startup. And, uh, and, and, but less than f- in 48 hours getting from leaving Incipient, I, uh, I changed my mind. Because, you know, once you're out and you can think with a clear head about the 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 business and the market, I realized that large enterprises, large enterprise storage is a bad place to be yeah. for a startup. Yeah. Really hard place. So I, by the time we met with him, I said, I don't, I don't think this idea holds water. But, but, but a month prior inside the company, I was convinced it was the best idea. Right. It, it's interesting that that momentum of the rocket, to use your earlier analogy, it doesn't just affect you know, the board 
restraining you from doing things, that it reflects your degrees of freedom in yes. terms of understanding uh, uh, you know, right. how to evolve the strategy yourself. You're in the bubble. I mean. It's very hard as a founder, founder CEO. I've never been a hired CEO, but as a founder CEO, it's very hard to see the forest for the trees and fail fast and call your baby ugly, right? All those things. Yeah, yeah. That's what a good board, I think, should do. Right. So how did Nanigans come about? So I did a full year of... So having learned that the idea does matter, the market matters, and, and to not move too quickly, I ended up... With, I had a, my first idea post-incipient was to do... Was, was, was an idea I wrote 50 slides on called... called uh, Local, local bridge was the idea. It was a online to offline um, uh, affiliate network, basically for tracking offline conversions. Um, the second idea, and eventually I thought that was too hard to play. It was just too hard to pull off. Uh, the second, um, second idea was a video, peer-to-peer um, -peer video um, network, essentially. Uh, and I eventually decided that was too hard because the, you're going to fight we're going to fight with the Comcast of the world. And then the third idea was essentially something in social. And the reason I got, got interested in social was because a friend of mine from Penn was, a, was friends with Mark Pincus, the founder of Zynga. And I'd heard about Zynga's uh, you know, incredible growth on the back of Facebook. And I heard that Mafia Wars got to a million-dollar day. This is in 2009. And uh, got interested in social as a platform and, and went, started going to social gaming um, you know, conferences and, and eventually. So Nanigans originally was going to be a social game publisher. We quickly learned, though, that the virality, like virality was the key to social games, and that's not, that's a hard thing to bolt on as a publisher. You need, it needs to be designed into the game. And so that idea went away. And then it became basically paid social marketing. We would do that as a publisher. But then we realized that the, the companies, the studios that needed publishing, meaning money for marketing, were the bad studios, were not the talented studios. Right, the right. talented studios at the time didn't need any money. They were growing virally. So, or, or they had plenty of VC money. Right. So eventually we ended up selling, started, Nanigan started selling. We had an app that we built called Top Apps, uh, and then we started selling app installs to, to these companies. And you were doing all this on your own nickel. Yeah, so... Uh, iterating and juking and moving to kind of find the, where, where was the pony and the horseshit. Correct. Yeah. Like... Uh, Conley and Incipient and Nanigans, I funded the initial phase myself. Uh, that gives you a lot of control, you know, without doing a seed round from a VC-led seed round. Seed round. Um, I happen to have angel investors as well who, who, who had invested in Conley that made money with me before, so they invested in Nanigans again, and uh, also in addition to my own money. So, so we did a seed round. It took about a, a seed phase, I should say, and we had to pick between top apps, uh, which is sort of a portal for gaming versus this ad tech idea of optimizing advertising. And we right. chose the advertising because it's B2B, it was easier to bootstrap. So we talked a little bit about, you know, Facebook, um, what a behemoth they've become, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, before we sat down at the mic here and, and, um, uh, you know, you, you clearly picked the right horse there in terms of of something to hitch your wagon to, but it has to be hard dancing with an elephant in that way. Um, you know what? Uh, what's that like? I mean, you're 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 in the thick of it. I mean, they are they are arguably the most valuable advertising property 
in the world right now, but uh, you know, you're dealing with a partner that's got a lot of juice. Yeah, they and Google, obviously. Um, sure. In 2010, we integrated with the Facebook Ads API. We were one of the first top you know, six companies or something. We moved quickly. We had some MIT, smart MIT kids who, who integrated. Um, and, yeah, no, we, we picked the platform because there was a discontinuity in the market. There was already search. Google search obviously was prevalent, and people knew how to optimize campaigns on search, but no one had done sort of social, uh, paid social optimization or Facebook optimization. So if you think of SEM, there was no FEM, Facebook. You know. Yeah, sure. Uh, and that was a good idea. I mean, we, we were e it was easy to get customers, and we grew really quickly. Uh, we bootstrapped it with managed services. We eventually did an A round. We got to profitability uh, with, the, with the seed money and, and angel money. And then we did, when we did an A round with a VC led by Avalon part, uh, Ventures here locally, Rich Levendov, and uh, they, they, uh, we, we had already become profitable, and we, we think we'd got a pretty good deal and, and, and didn't have to give up much control, uh, unlike Incipient where I gave up control like day one. Right. And what happened? Did I that? answer your question? Oh, so w then we watched Facebook go from, I mean, whatever they were, I don't know, 100, 200 million dollar company in 2010 to a 20, 30 billion dollar company. Yeah. It's just amazing. They've executed so well uh, relative to their competition. And, but yeah, it's hard. We, um, it's hard to, to build a company on a company, uh, you know, on an ecosystem like Facebook's or Google's, uh, it became clear a couple of years ago that Nanigans needed to become more independent. That in order to s sell or go public or exit, we needed to be much more independent. What is the secret to acquiring customers successfully in Facebook? What what do what do the big guys know that the little guys don't? I mean, I like to say there are like four things that matter for for face for opt for optimizing any ad campaign. One is the creative, two is the context of when you show the ad, where you show the ad, what devices, etc. Uh, three is is the uh, the, tar the targeting, the audience, the people that you're going after, and four is the optimization. All four of those things have to happen. They're all, I mean, it's hard to say which is more important. They're all important. Creative can move the needle just as much as targeting. Um, optimization is is critical for all this. And optimization means data, right? You've got to have the right data, the right machine learning, the right predictive models. Um, you know, the big guys, the really big guys are, are careful in how much data they share with Facebook and Google because they, they know that, like, any, any purchases or that they share or any conversions they share, um, competitors will target those people through those channels. So um, that's, that's one thing. I think, I think advertisers need to build their own data assets. They're paying for these people, you know, to arrive at their website or into their app. They need to build data, their own data assets. I also think people need to start, uh, start optimizing for incremental return as opposed to just uh, ad attributed uh, returns. Well, explain that a little more. What, what do you mean by that? So most of the world is, uh, is optimizing for what we, what we call, you know, attributed conversions where an ad gets credit for purchases that happen on users that have seen the ad or clicked on the ad. And the problem with that is it doesn't, uh, it doesn't prove causality, meaning the ad may or may not have caused the user to purchase. The user may have purchased anyway or converted to virtual goods or whatever your app is selling or site anyway without the ad. So, uh, you know, optimizing for ads, pay, bidding on ads uh, or budgeting ads ad spend based on the lift that you get from the ads, meaning the increase in conversion rate, 
is, is, is a better way to go. So we're trying to help customers do that. Right, as opposed to just, you know, finding um, finding the customers most likely to buy and putting an ad in front of them. Right. Um, yeah, that gives you a false sense of success when it comes to the incremental. But the whole world optimizes that way. They, they measure that way. Yeah. And, yeah, it, the whole world, the $200 billion of ad spend, I think a digital, we, we believe is, the vast majority is, is not optimized correctly. Yeah. It's interesting for someone who's built a company so data-driven in the pursuit of advertising that creative is at least on the list. Um, what, what does your dad feel about uh, about uh, <laughs> how you've come full circle into the family business, at least at some level? I mean, my dad's you know seventy-seven and he did, sort of uh, years old, semi-retired. He missed the kind of missed the digital optimization sure. game. Um, but I think yeah, he, he certainly sees the, the value of creative, and uh, I think he just wishes he could he could play more, you know, still in this game. Nanigan's founder and CEO, Rick Calvillo, a great uh, entrepreneur and um, uh, a really great guy to know, especially if you're in Nantucket, which uh, uh, he knows like the back of his hand. Really enjoyed getting to know where he came from, his entrepreneurial journey, which uh, certainly started earlier than most, uh, still going strong with Nanigan's. Okay, be sure not to miss out on my next conversation with a major luminary of the Boston startup community. Look for How Hard Can It Be on your favorite podcasting platform and click that big subscribe button. While you're there, please consider giving us a five-star rating. It really helps spread the word. Thanks for sticking around this week, and we will see you next time.